Welcome to episode 71 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance, risk and technology. I'm Brad Carr, once again at home in the suburbs of Washington. I'm not sure what week we're up to of lockdown or quarantine, but it's fast getting to the point where we can't remember doing this any other way. We have a great guest with us today, but before we welcome him, I want to take a moment to firstly welcome back my colleague and today's co-host, Natalia Bailey. Natalia and her husband Brandon had their second child in March, little Bruno, or maybe not so little Bruno, since she was just telling me how he's already wearing six to nine month size clothes. Natalia, before we turn to our guest, could you tell us how has it been adding to the family at this time and how are all of you, including four-year-old Olivia, how are you all doing during this unprecedented time? Thanks, Brad. It's really interesting being home. I think it's easier for me to keep track of the weeks because Bruno is now going to be 12 weeks. That means that we were quarantined almost 13 weeks at this point. And it's been a little bit tough having a four-year-old at home that doesn't see her friends. But I think it's also becoming the new normal with Zoom calls, ballet classes on Zoom and art classes on Zoom. Like you said, now this is what we all just have gotten used to. Bruno's doing well. He's definitely gotten really big. We don't know what happened with him, how fast he's grown. But I guess it's better than him not growing. So we'll take that. It's going to be some fascinating books to be written in the future about what this period does to child psychology and child development and the like. Um, but most immediately, uh, we're all delighted that you're all doing well. And we look forward to seeing you all again in person when we actually can and welcoming you back into the IEF. But for the moment, it's great that everything's going so well. So while Natalia and I could probably talk very happily about families and the funny things that young kids get up to and the like all day, uh, we won't do that because we have a very special guest with us. Torsten Kleinbuning is the Chief Risk Officer at Deem Finance in the United Arab Emirates. Torsten's based in Dubai. Before that, Torsten was the Chief Risk Officer at Harsbank in Mongolia, a bank that I always thought was pronounced Zakbank until Torsten gently corrected me during an IIF Chief Risk Officer forum in Tokyo a couple of years ago. And before all of that, he was Head of Governance for Enterprise-Wide Risk Management at Standard Chartered, including with the responsibility for credit models. It was during that time that Natalia and I first got to work with Torsten. He chaired and very much led the intellectual thinking of the IAF RWA Task Force, and he was a great mentor to both Natalia and I through that period when we were analysing the variance in banks' models and proposing some very specific recommendations for harmonisation and closing that variance. But he has since gone on to cover a much wider remit, which we'll talk about today. Torsten, thanks for joining us and welcome to FRT. Thank you, Brett, for having me. I'm keen to have you tell us a little bit about Deem Finance, and I'll make sure that we do that a little bit later. We're also going to focus most of our conversation on risk, and in particular on the emerging risk issues associated with digital transformation and with the ethics and conduct in how we use data, and I guess with the current context with COVID overlaying all of that. But firstly, with COVID in mind, can you tell us a little bit about life in Dubai at present, what the conditions are like there? It's obviously a city that is a modern global hub. It's at the centre of global trade. It's a tourist hub that facilitates and relies on international connectivity. We've seen some of the news about where Emirates' fleet has been adjusted through the period. As an Australian with family on the west coast of Australia, I often have transited through Dubai or Abu Dhabi between Washington and there, and it's always struck me how, particularly in the summertime, people gravitate to the shopping centres seeking the air-conditioned comfort. It must be a very different and very interesting world there right at the moment. How does it feel and look on the ground there? Yeah, well, um, COVID has taken its toll on Dubai, uh, as on, like on many other cities in the world with the lockdowns and the restrictions. I believe we are through the thick of it. Uh, the new case development is falling and the government has started uh, a fast track reopening process, which includes malls, restaurants, as well as most recently uh, the opening of pools and fitness centers. We see that the government is still asking the people to follow precautionary measures like wearing gloves, masks, 
keep social distancing and sanitizers all over the place. We see that the people are hesitant to go back to the malls because they have gotten so easily used to the digital setup, as well as there's still some fear about the virus. At the same time, as we see people coming back, reopening is, in my eyes, the most dangerous period, as the general population might become too easily, too quickly um, with the kind of restrictions. And that could trigger a second wave and undo the success in flattening the curve, as we had here in Dubai only a lockdown period of effectively three months and very limited death cases. Overall, Dubai had already been on a rather high level of digitalization of services, both for government and private sector. Therefore, during the lockdown period, one could actually do everything at home and from home. So you have digital service for getting your food, getting your laundry. We have even a fuel delivery service for the few days that you need really your car. So the digital kind of services have helped the situation quite a lot. Of course, for a trade hub and tourism destination like Dubai, the lockdown has had a major impact. Like sectors like trade, tourism and retail have been most affected because the, the international tourism has stopped. Uh, you can see the airplanes being grounded and there's hardly any airplane in the air above Dubai. Uh, tourism and retail have subsequently stopped and the malls have been empty for kind of two to two and a half months. And subsequently, we see education and services being affected because uh, the way the people consume the services has changed. And secondly, families have been forced initially into e-learning since March onwards, which kind of changes the whole education sector. The overall COVID situation has resulted in material distortions to the economic activity and with that to the labor market. We must not forget that in Dubai, 85 to 90 percent of the population is foreign. So uh, a lot of people kind of dependent on this country and the companies have in light of the economic crisis implemented salary cuts unpaid leave schemes and job losses, which then have resulted in an outflow of these 85 to 90% or part of that of expatriates and foreign workers. Ultimately, we expect that at the end of this crisis, 10 to 15% of the foreign population will have left the country and is only expected to slowly return back to Dubai for various reasons. One, the jobs might not be here anymore. People got used to work from home, so they might work from India or Bangladesh or Germany, wherever they come from. The next one is the various government measures to prevent imported infections have stimulated international travel and the implementation of the quarantine rules is really unlikely to help the recovery. It's the same debate, I guess, in the UK with the two weeks quarantine. So only once that has been addressed, I think international tourism and trade will come back. And with that, the recovery in the respective sectors are going to start. Overall, Dubai, as many other Middle Eastern countries here in the region, has been victim to a double whammy of both the lockdown effects from the COVID crisis and the all-time low of the oil prices that we have recently seen. In my view, to get a robust recovery for Dubai, the key is fast track and reliable testing pre-departure and on arrival, as well as having a cure and vaccination. But I'm reasonably optimistic that we will see a recovery by fourth quarter 2020 or early 2021. And I can already see early green sprouts, amongst others driven by pent-up demand and a better understanding of the virus and the corresponding risk profiles. As for example, here in Dubai, children below 12 and adults above 60 are not allowed to come to the public as they are seen as A, a bigger spreader, the kids below 12, and B, the ones above 60 as a most vulnerable segment. On a personal note, working from home since March 2020 
has raised the focus on effective communication and keeping the social fabric with my colleagues because the open door or water cooler conversations have fallen away. So you have to spend more time in keeping up with the colleagues now and be more active with that. And the other one is preventing the burnout amongst my staff because the work days and weekends have become a blur over the time and the clear-cut office hours have faded away. So I had to even stop a few people from working too many hours. There's, of course, another risk that I see uh, with the current situation. That's the being too close to the boss risk. Some people work from home. In our case, 70% of the staff at some point of time. And there was some enviness like, uh, amongst the colleagues who would be in the head office close to the CEO. But that has to be managed as to create an equal level playing field amongst the colleagues. And most importantly, I do not miss the daily commute to the office. You know, getting to my table in five minutes rather than to commute one hour through the intensive Dubai traffic. No, I don't miss that. I think each of those points really resonate. <laughs> Certainly the point about the commute, but also the socialization in the office and the, the water cooler conversations you mentioned. You touched there on migrant workers, and I think it's a really interesting thought that whilst the IF does uh, obviously a lot of research around capital flows, we might need to look more at the impact on remittances, which I think is going to be significant if it's not already. I want to perhaps pivot for a moment and pick up your previous experience at Harzbank in Mongolia. And I know you became quite embedded in the Mongolian community. You were very actively involved with the German-Mongolian Chamber of Commerce and the like. I imagine you're still in touch with people in Mongolia. Do you have a sense at all or much visibility as to what conditions are like there at the moment? Oh, yeah, yeah. I still keep an eye on Mongolia. It was a great time there, so I still have connections and keep myself updated. And uh, what I have observed is that Mongolia has, unlike other countries, taken very early on a very aggressive stance on uh, COVID. Uh, literally in uh, late January 2020, when the cases in China started, Mongolia has isolated itself from the rest of the world. Uh, there are still uh, hundreds of Mongolians outside of the country who cannot come back because the government has taken very restrictive measures on who can come back and who cannot come back. Um, the reason for that is the country has a very vulnerable age population uh, and the country has a health system that's not robust enough, uh, especially when you compare it to the health systems like in Korea, Singapore, or in, in some European countries. Um, overall, what I've seen is Mongolia has something close to 200 cases and very interestingly, and kind of proof to their strategy, all of these cases have been imported cases from repatriations or from the first initial uh, patient zero, who was a French uh, worker who came to the country and spread the virus then. Um, I think the country is going to continue in, to enforce its tight social distancing and constraints regime, which of course creates economic distress, especially at a time when the mining exports, which is kind of the key source of income, coal and copper, uh, have been materially reduced. You, you have to think that has dropped by 60% compared to uh, year-to-date last year. Uh, I believe the country will only reopen once vaccination cure at hand. And uh, currently they are going through the annual, uh, through the uh, election process in the summer. And so I think Mongolia is going to reopen at earliest by July, August, and then in a very cautious manner, slower than other countries, I believe. That's very interesting, Torsten. And if I continue just on the same thread about COVID-19, do you see it as an accelerant for digital transformation? Is it accelerating trends that were already underway or are there specific trends that stand out the most for you? It's a clear yes. The current situation has accelerated the digital transformation. Some changes were initially thought to take years to come, 
but now they have been implemented literally in weeks. Things that weren't possible before, where there were technical, legal, or whatever else hurdles that appear to be unsurmountable, have been done in weeks. For example, I would like to highlight is implementation and acceptance of digital identities and signatures, something the industry has been looking to for some time, where the governments had major issues. Here in Dubai, we now have UAE Pass, a digital identity tool, which you can use for digital sign-off and underwriting. Another example is transition to digital payments, stepping away from cash as the main instrument for payments, both towards card and loan payments, i.e. the installments, or at point of sale. We clearly see the customer shift away from cash, although before Dubai was kind of a cash society. Provisions of non-branch-based loan and card offerings versus digital means. That includes even the approval and booking in a straight-through process. Previously, people wanted to come to branches, wanted to have face-to-face -face contact. Now we see a very intensified interest and use of the application-based loan and card offering, and that includes then really up to the booking and the disbursement of the card. And last but not least, working from home using remote desktop protocols and the use of video conferencing. Things where it was in the past real difficulty to get your IT to approve you these type of things. Now we have 70% of our workforce working from home with video conferencing, remote desktop protocols, and it works. We have even uh, half of our contact center working from home from their own private desks. Now, while these developments are positive and welcome, this comes at the price of increased vulnerability in my eyes against cybercrime and demands the risk function to be on top of the information security and cyber risk agenda. You know, during these COVID-19 period and work from home models, we have observed spikes in phishing attacks, spams, malwares, ransom software, you, you name it, it was there. And it's not only the business that is being attacked, uh, we see also our end users are being attacked. And that requires us to be on the communication agenda with the clients and also to ref up our own defense lines. One of the things that also affects later on the modeling part is these things have been topics for the IT nerds in the past, but now they become mainstream. And what we see is that these topics are closely to fraud. Like if you talk about deep fake media, identity theft, document fraud, in a digital environment, there's completely new avenues that people can go. And business continuity, like phishing, denial of service, ransomware. And I have to say, the weakest element is still in front of the keyboard, the user, social engineering, and too easy to identify passwords. So cyber risk and information security training awareness have become critical during this period. And I think that's a trend that is here to stay, same as the acceleration of use of digital means products. Short-term play may be to go for simple solutions, but what we have seen is on cyber risk and cyber crime, you cannot go quick. You have to go the right way. And I see is the main outcome of this crisis is fast track acceleration towards digital means and also that you have to get your organization super waterproof against cyber crime and information security risk. That's interesting. I've seen a lot of your responses to different articles on LinkedIn, and there have been a, quite a few articles that touch on the impact of COVID on AI and machine learning. So you see these technologies that are being used for health solutions that can be embedded and accepted in society. But then we've seen that there's been these immediate challenges for AI and machine learning in finance, where previous data sets that were used to train algorithms bear less resemblance to the new world, so they no longer represent the world we live in. What is your view on the future of AI and machine learning and then these sophisticated data analytics? That's a very important point. 
I think artificial intelligence and machine learning have become part of the standard set of tools used. For example, we use these type of approaches for credit decision making, shifting from binary yes to no credit decision to identifying surface of price, tenor, and amount that suits the customer best, or fraud detection in light of ever-changing profiles and attack patterns. And of course, the calibration of conventional behavior scorecards assisted by machine learning-based approaches that select the best attributes for you. But same like any other conventional model, AI and ML models were not geared and trained for the current situation. I mean, this is a one in 100 exceptional situation, and therefore the data sets never reflected a situation like this. As I had posted before, my view is you have to understand the limitations of your models and manage against those and with those in mind. Therefore, it was critical for us in Deem Finance to understand the limitations of the models, conventional and AIMNL, and then to address the situation. We have addressed this via three avenues. One is manual overlays and policy measures, where we knew that the model hadn't been trained for the situation, or where we knew from first case applications that the model had weaknesses and we had to oversteer. Second, through retraining of the models. And thirdly, through information to stakeholders, how to read the model outcomes under these conditions. We wanted to prevent another value at risk scenario where people didn't know what the model said and misinterpreted the model and then caused a similar situation. The recent shift to digital platforms has, of course, helped us in retraining the, process, uh, the models because the digital process gives and creates a far bigger wealth of information on a far faster mode than what you had in the old paper-based approaches. I think for artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think we are going through the same curve as with any other trend. It has somewhat peaked and practitioners now understand that AI and ML is not the panacea to all of the issues, but if well understood, a powerful tool for decision-making and analytics. Like with any other modeling, the outcomes need credible models from the quality of the underlying data and the subject matter expertise of the modeler, as even AI and ML still needs guidance. We haven't yet found, if you follow Star Trek uh, Enterprise, uh, we haven't found yet data who knows everything and can handle data on his own. That ties in really well with model governance. You're essentially saying AI machine learning needs model governance and that we need to know the boundaries of the models. And then we need to manage with the outcome in mind, taking into account the data, which is very much what we have seen from others who are in machine learning at the IIF. There is one paper that we will be producing later this year that will be touching on that. Uh, we've done a survey on the use of machine learning, but the governance of those models. I think will be some interesting insights that we can give you on that later on. Torsten, you were talking there about data, and besides your Star Trek analogy, which is very creative, if we can talk about the central role of data in the economy and linking, I guess, to how that underpins the new technologies like machine learning that we were talking about. But I wonder, you know, the extent to which you see that it is more important than ever that we get the ethical use of data right. And I think in part here of, you know, the Risk Minds conference last December very much highlighted data ethics and conduct as I think probably one of the, the top two or three risks present today. We saw the, the Bank of England Future of Finance report last year that called out overwhelmingly that banks are much more trusted with personal data than other firms such as technology companies and social media and you know, telcos and the like. And I wonder that as we're suddenly seeing the you know, dramatic acceleration of digitization, the increased centrality of data in the new economy, whether being able to ensure that you're using data ethically and that you're able to demonstrate that to your customers, does that become an increasingly important differentiator for financial services firms? To be absolutely clear, to maintain customer trust 
is critical and that must inform both data management as well as your data ethics that you apply. A single mishap on customer data can ruin all the efforts you have undertaken on creating a brand and establishing customer confidence. With the acceleration of digital processes, banks and financial institutions need to take all measures, in my view, to protect customer data. But it's not limited to the amount of data that you gather. You need to gather as much as necessary, but more than that. We need to accept there's a customer privacy, and we need to accept that customers nowadays become more and more conscious about which data you ask them for and if you are using their data. Second, we have to look at access control to customer data, both internally for reporting, analytics, modeling. You know, there's a big temptation that everyone gets access to your data lake and can report and analytics, and by that you kind of lose control over your data. And externally for the customer, you have to make sure that when you have an app or when you have access to reports that the customer can draw himself, that these are perfectly secured so that you're not creating an information leakage there or an information breach in the worst case. And last but not least, information security is critical, both during the internal processing and the external perspective, but especially for the internal processing at system level and at user level. Nowadays, with the mobile phones being around, you know, people can take screenshots and run away with the data and immediately it's gone. In my eyes, the European General Data Protection Regulation, although it's not applicable to us because we are not uh, falling under the scope of it, but it has been a very good guidance on how to manage customer data and how to create awareness in the company across the functions and teams that customer data is a very sensitive topic that has to be dealt with very carefully. Because as I said, a single mishap, kind of impossible to handle. So how can firms demonstrate their ethical use and win or maintain customer trust? Well, customer trust, I think there's four aspects that we have to look at when we want to ensure that customer entrust us with their data. As mentioned before, maintaining as little information as possible, but as much as necessary. The second is to demonstrably taking all means necessary to avoid data breaches, information leakages and or uh, public disclosures of data. And then speaking on customer trust, we can't forget continuity of services. You have to make sure that the customer, even under a stressed situation like COVID, can access his data. The worst that you can have is a situation like this, where you have a dependency on the digital channel and then your channel is not available or your channel is available but gives the wrong information out. That doesn't create trust, that doesn't create comfort with the organization. For that, although it's not visible to the public, companies need to really assess the critical processes and identify the options where data leakages can happen, where data breaches can happen, and how we gather the information. So are there any particular implications for how we use and govern our risk models? Well, look, in a dream world, full access to all data is, of course, the dream of every modeler. But we have to recognize the privacy of our clients. Of course, if I wanted to be the perfect modeler, then I would love to have access to everything, your communications, all your data. But that is not possible and that's also not sensible. Therefore, we need to be very clear which critical data we need and which information from the data we need to arrive with so that we can develop robust, predictable, and credible models. One of the examples I like to give is asking access to clients' messages and mining these for information is eligible in some countries and done some by companies. I mean, have you ever wondered when you have had two or three emails chatting about some new fishing gear, in my case, 
as soon after you get advertisements on your browser for the latest phishing gear that you have been chatting. That's a breach in my eyes of clients' privacy. On the other hand, analyzing social media, like for example, some fintechs do, to identify credit quality is questionable and prone to fraud. Why, you would ask? Well, instead of social media mining, you could ask for highest education degree, match that with the visa or employment information that you have, and that's faster and more credible than mining messages to see whether from grammar and spelling whether a client has a good education, and for that would be a good credit quality. The other thing is now fraudsters have understood that some companies have access to messages and communications, and they exploit this by creating message streams and by creating artificially created identities. Additionally, I think we need to spend much more time and effort on data management to ensure that the data, for example, is truly representative of the client base. That is to create models that actually reflect your client base and do not have gaps and holes. And that the data that we use is not biased against certain client profiles or patterns that may be the result of ease of data access or the way you look at the data. And of course, we need to ensure that we do not fall for confirmation bias in handling the data so that we pick the data that we always thought that would anyway evidence what we had in mind. And that is one of the points I want to kind of underline. I nowadays get a lot of CVs from people who have had three-week training course on Python, R, or similar, and claim to themselves that they're machine learning experts or AI experts or have these machine data mining qualities. No, you need more. You need uh, domain expertise. You need to have a sound understanding, and you need to be a very, very rigorous person on the data that you pick because AI and ML has the same weakness as any other model. They are only as good as the data stream that you feed into the model. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think your point there about ensuring that you're not discriminating against a particular sector of the community is a really interesting one. Last year on FRT, we discussed with Nedbank some of the challenges they see in the South African market where, unfortunately, just about every dimension that you could possibly be using in your models in some way has a legacy of the apartheid history and how difficult it is to ensure that you can get beyond that and ensure that you are being fair. It's a great challenge in some places given the data that's available, but one that we as an industry all need to be vigilant about. Torsten, I'd like to widen the conversation briefly to the CRO role as a whole. We see that the Chief Risk Officer role has has probably evolved in the last few years, that it was historically considered to be quite credit-centric, that the natural career path to becoming a CRO often went through credit with a role of Chief Credit Officer or or from the business side. But increasingly, we're seeing a trend where there is a greater focus on the non-financial risks, or the so-called non-financial risks at least. The IAF does an annual survey together with Ernst & Young of CROs around the world, and that's really shown in the last three or four years a shift from the traditional financial risks to more towards some of these new and emerging non-financial risks as being the greater priorities and areas of focus for a CRO. Interested in your thoughts and your perspective and, and the extent to which you see that perhaps data ethics and governance and conduct are now at or near the top of CRO's priorities? I would have almost answered that you have to be a renaissance man who is good in literally everything and interested in everything. But uh, to answer your question, I think in my view, the CRO role has definitely changed. I believe it's not anymore sufficient to be a good credit underwriter, to be a good CRO, to be a qualified CRO. Looking at the bigger picture that you have drawn, you need to take now more than credit into perspective. You need to have an eye on, of course, credit. You need to have an eye on fraud. You need to have an eye on the digital uh, means and avenues that are now opening up with 
the related risks that you see from there, cyber risk, information security, data ethics. Looking at the data perspective, actually, uh, today's CRO in my eye needs to be either the financial institution's chief data scientist or very close to the chief data scientist. In my case, I'm lucky. I'm also the company's chief data scientist. And what that means is I have to look at data management, capturing the ethics, the governance, and the conduct how data is handled and analyzed. And that has become a critical part of my day-to-day -day job because ultimately the decision-making of the organization should be data-driven. And therefore, I have to understand the whole chain from where the data came from, how the data was manipulated, how the data flew into the models, and then how the models have then responded to the data. And I also have to be aware how this might have been manipulated or how this might have managed to have an ulterior intent in mind. Being a CRO, as I said, doesn't limit myself only to credit risk, but most recently and, and to, to the biggest is three things. It's the old topic of operational risk has become really kind of a topic, especially now with a lot of people working from home and the BCP processes in place. You have really seen whether your operational risk framework has actually captured your breakpoints and your vulnerable points and the points of failure and whether you had the right controls in place. The second is cybercrime. I have to be literally on daily calls with my CISO to understand whether we are victim to cybercrime, whether we have been attacked, whether we are safe, whether there is the latest update. For example, Central Bank of the UAE is very active, sending every second day bulletins out, warning banks, advising banks on, on recent frauds and uh, cybercrimes. I have to understand how the models work for those how to detect threats and vulnerabilities. And last but not least, fraud. I mean, in, in times like this, where uh, a large part of the economic population is under distress, uh, you have to be absolutely on top of your fraud game to prevent fraud. And at the same time, to balance your uh, kind of temptation for intrusive checks. You know, I would like to check everything before I give you a loan, versus the level of fraud and the customer experience. Of course, CROs nowadays need to closely work with the compliance officer to ensure proper conduct, for example, via communication, training and enforcement, and to ensure, furthermore, that the code of conduct the company has is fit for use. I mean, code of conduct is, in my world, the bigger term that includes then also the ethics and the attitude and the tone from the top. It seems like the CRO role has really changed in recent years. So talking about yourself now and Dean Finance, you moved from Hasbank to Dean Finance, which is a growing business. Can you talk to us more about Dean Finance? What stands out as the exciting opportunities and challenges ahead? Uh, look, Hasbank in Mongolia is a universal bank with a strong focus on inclusive lending and eco-finance in a developing, well-resource-rich country. So this was the big scheme. Deem, on the other hand, was built to be disruptive, to combine the vision and innovation to be more than simply another challenger bank. And my excitement here for Deem stems from the fact that I have the opportunity to drive fintech-style approach. My CEO, for example, doesn't limit anything here. We are very much on the journey forwards digital end-to-end -end processes with the idea to implement a model-driven decision-making in a competitive environment. The genesis of what we do is actually very simple. We want to build a business that uses data and all of the technologies available with a coherent purpose. Our management team comes from various banks, so we have uh, some experience on that. And we have realized that finance is never really geared towards the consumer interests, which can leave a lot of consumers uneasy. So we try to deliver information to our customers that enables them to pick the right choices for them from our portfolio of offering. 
And that is our strategy where the customer and its intent is in the center. Torsten, that's great to hear. And I think it's an exciting business that you have there. It's been great to speak with you again. I know it's been a little while since we had that closer engagement at the time of the the RWA task force work, but it's been fantastic to hear your perspective in particular, how the CRO role is evolving, how the, the focus on a number of the key data issues and the same machine learning topics that we've focused on a lot at the IEF, how that evolves and is affected, particularly in the current circumstance. I want to recap on just a couple of the points that you've highlighted. It was fascinating, firstly, to hear about the situation in Dubai and in particular migrant workers and the prompt I'll take to look at the remittances situation a bit more. The double whammy in the region of COVID combined with oil prices. And I think you articulated somewhat similarly for Mongolia where COVID's been compounded with the coal and and copper price impacts. I like the point you make about as we adjust in the workforce and the phenomenon of being too close to the boss. And it reminds me a lot of a comment that Martin Gilbert, chairman of Standard Life Aberdeen, made a couple of weeks ago, that the need for leadership to be visible is more critical than ever in navigating times like this. And I think there's a great responsibility for the person that is the boss in whatever environment to be very cognizant of the signals that they provide to their staff when we move into a return to office scenario. Really interesting initiative you mentioned about the UAE pass and that because of COVID, you know, I certainly agree we've seen uh, some of the traditional areas of inertia for digitization have somewhat fallen by the wayside. But it's a great initiative to see there where governments are increasingly accepting digital identity tools and, and the UAE pass being a great example. That's an area we're focusing a lot at the moment, and in particular with the Open Global Trust Initiative. I'm increasingly finding, I think, just about every conversation we've had over the last six or eight weeks anywhere has very much gravitated to digital identity. I like the point that uh, a single mishap on customer data can undo all of the good work you've done in building the brand, and I think that's a, a very timely and pertinent reminder. The criticality of ensuring the continuity of service to a customer probably never been more true than right at the moment, and certainly the, uh, the utilisation of underlying technologies like cloud that have helped to enable that is really important. I also lastly like the point you make about where the CRO role has changed, that it's no longer sufficient to be a strong credit underwriter. And you added to that very nicely, I thought, with the point about the the importance of being close to the chief data scientist within the organisation. I think that's a great point that really resonates. So, Torsten, that's been terrific. Great to hear from you and great for you to share your insights with us so generously. So thank you for joining us on FRT. Thank you, Brad, for having me. And it was a great conversation. Thank you. And as we look ahead on FRT in upcoming weeks, we're going to have another discussion within the Gulf region. We're going to speak with Basil Gamal, the CEO of the Qatar Islamic Bank, who's going to uh, update us on innovation in Islamic finance. But we're also going to continue on this theme of data policy uh, and some of the points we've discussed today with Torsten, and also some that we covered in our great discussion a few weeks ago with David Hardoon in Singapore on episode 66. And we're going to talk with Tanvi Singh, the Chief Analytics Officer on Credit Suisse, to explore some of those themes a bit further. And the Global Open Digital Trust Initiative that I just mentioned, it's an exciting new development from the OpenID Foundation and led by some of the leading international banks in the world, as well as firms like eBay and MasterCard. The IF is collaborating to develop the policy framework in this initiative, and we're going to tell you all about that in upcoming weeks on FRT. So please join us again then. This is Brad Carr and Natalia Bailey signing off for FRT.